I invite you to turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 37. We have some unfinished business in Genesis. Um, about three years ago, we started Genesis, and we studied Genesis 1 through 11. And that was about the creation of the earth, the creation of the world by a creator. And we, had, we spent a few months on Genesis 1 through 11. Then, about a year ago, we picked back up, and we study Genesis 12 through 35, which is basically the story of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And we see how God's promises, how God's promise to Eve as being worked out in the line of Abraham. Right? Eve, Eve said, through your, or God said to the snake, he said, the offspring of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. And redemptive history is the unfolding of that promise. Then God made a covenant to Abraham and said, Through you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And we studied that. Now we're going to pick up on a new section in the story and, and finish Genesis by God's grace over the next few months. And this is the story of Joseph. Joseph is the son of Jacob the um, great-grandson of Abraham, to whom the covenant promises were made. So that's where we're going for the next few months. Now, there are two reasons that, that I want to study the Old Testament with you and why we're reading the Old Testament. Usually, um, the children go downstairs in the basement to church, to Sunday school, to listen to Old Testament stories. And the adults are upstairs reading the epistles and studying the epistles of Paul. And it's almost like never the twain shall meet. And these things ought not to be. The Old and New Testament is for us. And Paul specifically says as much in Romans 15.4. He says, For whatever was written for in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. So, the Old Testament is something that we can be instructed by as Christians and something that we can derive hope from as we look at it through the lens of Jesus Christ. So that's the first reason I want to study the Old Testament with you for the next few months so that we would be instructed by it and we would gain hope through that study. Second reason I want to study the Old Testament is because we're Christians. Now when we study the Old Testament we are not reading it like Jewish people would 2,500 years ago. We are reading it the way Christ taught us to read it. This is very important. Jesus said you to the Pharisees, he said, you search the scriptures because in them you think you have life. But it is they that bear witness about me. The Old Testament scriptures bear witness about Jesus Christ. So, I want to look, I want to be part of our discipleship to Christ is viewing the Old Testament promises the way Christ taught us to and thereby gaining hope and being instructed. So as I preach through this sermon and even the sermon series, as we work our way through the story of Joseph, I want you to see the Old Testament shadows of Christ. Do you know something casts a shadow? Shadows just don't happen. There's something casting a shadow. The substance that casts the shadow that is the Old Testament is Christ. Christ is the substance, the Old Testament is the shadows that point to Jesus Christ. So as I preach this sermon even, I want you to see the redemptive plan of God being whispered the name of Jesus broiling underneath 
every movement of the passage. I want you to see how God has stitched the life, death, and resurrection into redemptive history in amazing and profound ways. So if you would turn with me to Genesis 37... Remember, the context here is that God has promised to Abraham that he would work his redemptive purposes through Abraham's family. So God shows a specific family to work through, to bring about his saving promises that he promised to Eve. Promise to Eve, the promise to Abraham, now the working out of that promise. That through Abraham's offspring... All the nations of the earth would be blessed. Would you read with me, starting verse 1. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings, in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pastoring the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with his sons Bil- with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph bought, brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons, because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all of his brothers... They hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. The text starts off telling us that these are the generations of Jacob. These are called Toledet phrases, and they section they, they are the chapter headings of Genesis according to the author, Moses. So every time a new section in the text begins, you see these are the generations of such as these are the generations of the heavens and the earth in Genesis 2 or these are the generations of uh, Abraham or these are the generations of Jacob and it means by generations of Jacob what the text means is that this is the account of Jacob's family of the fathers yes and so these are, the, these are the generations, this is the account, and what we're going to look at is the account of Jacob's sons here. These are the genera- generations of Jacob's sons. In this passage, Joseph, Jacob's youngest and most beloved son, emerges as one through whom God will keep the promises to Abraham. He's the one that God will use to keep the promises that he made to Abraham in profound ways. Now, it is not surprising that God will keep his promises. Studying Genesis 12 through 35, that'll be clear. That's clear that God is a promise-keeping God. What is surprising and unexpected is the manner in which those promises are kept, that are made more clear as this story progresses. And we cannot, this gets to the bigger picture of us today, we cannot discern how God is working in our life very often. We cannot discern God's providential hand in our life. But we are told and we learn from this story that God's sovereign and good and loving and providential hand is working against human sin and against evil by working through it. In this story, God uses the power of human sin and evil against itself to keep his promises. Now, from the outset, we see that Jacob is both, or Joseph is rather both, both loved and hated. He's loved by his father and he's hated by his brothers. In verse 2, we read that Joseph brought a bad report of his brothers to his father. A bad report, that just means he's a tattletale, it seems. He's definitely not afraid to speak ill of his brothers. So he brought a bad bad report 
to his father about his brothers. And you, so you see sort of the origin of hostility between him and his brothers. And Joseph clearly favors, or Jacob clearly favors Joseph. And he's not subtle about this favoritism at all. In fact, he makes Joseph a coat of many colors, a special coat to mark him out as the favored son. Now, there's some question as to whether this is a coat of many colors, like the Septuagint reads, or whether this is a long-sleeved coat. And there's great debates about this, but whichever, I think there are good reasons for a coat of many colors, but whichever one it is, clearly this coat was given to Joseph to mark, and it clearly marks him out as a favored son. And this isn't, don't think of this just as a family squabble or a family problem, because right now, in Jacob's family, it's not just a family, it's a tribe. It's a tribe of people with land and cattle. And um, Jacob was even you know, going to battle. So, or Jacob's sons were even going to battle. So, this, think of this more as a tribe. And so, Joseph, by having a coat of many colors, a special coat by the chieftain of the tribe, it marks him out as special and maybe the heir somehow of Jacob's position. And this drives Joseph's brothers, who are older than him, to hatred. Verse 4. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all, all of his brothers, they hated Jacob and could not speak peacefully to him. Now to add to that, to add to just the favoritism, the unhidden, by the way, favoritism seems to run in this family. Unhidden favoritism runs in this family, right? Joseph loved Rachel more than Leah, or Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah, right? Rachel loved Jacob more than Esau. And Isaac loved Esau more than Jacob. So that means this is like unhidden love is just clear in this family. And it's passed on now to Jacob and Joseph. And so the brothers are, are offended, angry, and even driven to hate. Which is a very strong word. So to add to that, it, to add to the unhidden favoritism that is being shown to Joseph, Joseph then has two dreams which only add fire to the hatred. Read with me, would you? Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? Are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. This dream is specific. By the way, a sheaf is like a long stock of, um, you know, hay. And they would lay it lengthwise and they would tie it up in the middle with a rope. So think of like a six-foot stock of corn or something. So these sheaves, G Jacob dreams that the sheaf, his sheaf that he was binding, stood up. And that his brother's sheaves began to bow down to Joseph. And the brothers correctly interpret this as Joseph assuming that he would reign over them and that they would bow down to him and they hated him even more so you see this mounting hatred and isn't is it not presumptuous for a youngest son to even say that kind of thing that's a, a weird thing to say so there's mounting hatred here if that weren't bad enough Joseph has yet a second dream 
and that envisions even greater ascendancy over his brothers. Then he dreamed another dream in verse 9, and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. This is after, by the way, his brothers rebuked him, their hatred is growing, and then he, what seems to be naively, comes to his brothers again and says, Guys, I have another dream! Behold, the sun and the moon and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. So this is the host of heaven bowing down to him. Not just his brothers now, but now the entire heavenly host begins to bow down in reverence for Joseph. Well, the father rebukes him. Jacob says, it says, But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? So, there's a stern rebuke by the chieftain of the tribe, the father. He's the youngest son. This is a Even if he had a dream, write it in your journal. You know, don't come telling the chieftain and the older brothers that they're going to bow down before you. So the brothers, this actually increases the brothers' hostility. There's something very interesting, though. Um, it says they grew jealous of him. Not that they hated him. Verse 11, and his brothers were jealous of him. Now, I find that interesting because jealousy means that you desire what someone else has. So, could it be, at this point, looking at the father's favoritism, the dreams, could it be that they believed there was something to his dreams at this point? I don't know. They were jealous over him. Jacob then rebukes Joseph for being presumptuous, as we read. But Jacob, it says keeps the saying in mind, again suggesting that perhaps there may be something to these presumptuous dreams. So the brothers hate him, now they envy and now they're jealous over, his, over, over, over Joseph, but his father keeps the saying in mind. That, does that, it almost reminds me of Mary when the wise men came and she stored these things up in her heart. Now we need to begin, if, if we're going to understand this story, if I'm going to preach this story right, right now, I have to preach it with the end in mind. Don't you? You don't understand the story of J Jacob until you've read the whole thing. J Joseph, rather. until you, you have to keep me honest with that, Gary. Every time I say Jacob, I mean Joseph, you have to tell me. Alright guys, you got to help him with that. Um... So, Joseph does actually ascend as these dreams prefigure. And interestingly, in Genesis 42, verse 6, there comes a point where the brothers of Joseph bow down before their younger brother. Because Joseph will arise to great ascendancy in a foreign land, and in 42 verse 6 we read that Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves down before him with their faces to the ground. So maybe the sons were right. Maybe there was something to the dream. There was something to the dream. So Joseph, hated and loved, hated by his brothers, loved by the father. Then Jacob sends Joseph on a journey to ensure the well-being of his brothers. Read with me, verse 12. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. 
And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to them, Here I am. So he said to them, He said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields, and the man asked, What are you seeking? I am seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where are they pasturing the flock? And the man said, They have gone away, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. Here we see in this paragraph, what you see here is a son's willingness to obey his father's will to go get his brothers. And you see the obedience played out in two ways very clearly in this paragraph. Number one, it's seen in his words to his father. What does he say? Come now, I will send you to them. Verse 13. And Joseph said to him, Here I am. Which is very interesting because that response is a weighty response in the Bible. In, let me just turn to 22 of Genesis, chapter 22. When God told Abraham to do something very weighty, he said, sacrifice your son. The way he began that command was the following. And after these things, God tested Abraham and said to Abraham, Abraham. And Abraham said, here I am. Is a very weighty response from a patriarch. When God calls Isaiah, Isaiah recounts this for us. It says, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am. Send me. So here I am is not a response that's just flippant. It's a, it is a weighty response, even though Jacob does not know it. In the providential, sovereign hand of God, Joseph is accepting a mission from a father. Secondly, you see Joseph's obedience worked out and the extent and this just the sheer extent of the journey. You know, he's 17 years old at this point, and from Hebron to Shechem is 30 miles north. So this is a 30-mile trek. Has anyone ever done a 30-mile hike? There you have. How was that? Tough. How long did that take? Okay, all day. Were you tired afterwards? <laughs> wow. That's pretty good. That's pretty good, Mark. So Mark did 30 miles, sun up to sundown. That's impressive. So there's a journey, a 30-mile journey from Hebron to Shechem. Then he meets a man in the field, and he doesn't actually find them where they're assigned to be or where they projected they would be pasturing the flock at that time. So the man said they went to Dothan, Dothan and Dothan is another 14 miles north. So we have maybe a 45 to 50 mile journey here. So he goes on this long trek, obedient to the Father's will. That is, that's what we see. A son who is obedient to the Father's will. And very interestingly, this is the last time Joseph will be with his father at home. Because when he leaves to find his brothers, he left for the last time. And he didn't know it. And he will never return to the land of Canaan only to bury people. 
but he will never return to live with his father and his brothers again in the land of Canaan. And he did not know it, but he accepted the mission that his father sent him on. Then the obedient son Joseph is betrayed at the hand of his brothers that he was sent to. Read with me. Verse 18. They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. And they said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we shall say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what becomes of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood. Throw him into the pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him. He said this that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore. And they took him and threw him into the pit. The pit was empty, and there was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat, and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead, with their camels bearing gum and balm and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. So these are slave traders, traders. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come now, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites. Come, let us kill. Come, let us sell to the Ishmaelites. And let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened. Then Midianite traders passed by. And they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. And they took Joseph to Egypt. So, Joseph is sent on this journey to find his brothers. Sent on a mission by the father to go get his brethren. And upon seeing Joseph, his brothers are filled with murderous hatred. And they say, come now, let us kill him. And we will see what becomes of his dreams. <laughs> I was listening to a podcast a few weeks ago, and they're commenting on that phrase. We will see what becomes of his dreams. The, the guy said, that's a very mustache twirly thing to say. <laughs> I just... I was laughing at that. That's so true. You could see him twirling his mustache. We will see what becomes of his dream. <laughs> it's just a funny scene. But obviously they were enraged. You know, it's it's not it's not literally like a cartoon. There was something demonic going on with them. And so by killing him, they would ensure that his dreams go unfulfilled. That's what they mean by that. When we kill him, we'll see what becomes of his dreams. That is, they will not become fulfilled. Which also makes one think that they still thought there might be something to those dreams. Perhaps. Now, do we not see a foreshadowing of how the people of Israel will treat those who are sent to them by the Father? They will kill the prophets that God sends to them. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets. So it seems that when the father sends a son, the people constantly are filled with murderous rage. But Reuben seeks to spare Joseph's life. Um... And so he said, you know, don't throw him in the pit. I mean, don't kill him. Let's throw him in the pit. Now, he was trying to actually save Joseph's life. Um, why is that? Why is he trying to save Joseph's life? Um, perhaps he's just a good brother who has a, who has a, a good heart for, 
for Joseph. But most, many commentators point out that Joseph was already in the doghouse, or Reuben was already in the doghouse with Jacob, his father, because he actually pulled a power play in Genesis 35, where he slept with his father's concubines. Now that, in ancient Near Eastern tradition, is a power move in a tribe. Same thing happened with, with David. Right? And when, 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 you're, when someone comes in to your concubines and sleeps with your concubines, that is, it, that is an assertion of dominance to the throne. Now Reuben did that. And perhaps here he's trying to make restitution. Perhaps he's, he was put in his place and he's trying to make restitution. Perhaps he feels some sense of guilt. We're not told, but I think that's an interesting wrinkle in the story. Then under the pretense of mercy, Judah says, let's sell him. I mean, after all, he's our flesh and blood. Let's just, you know, why don't we sell him and make, and make some money off of that? So we have a clear pretense of mercy, and Joseph is sold into slavery for 20 shekels of silver. So you have a betrayal by a son who was sent from a father by, by those to whom he was sent, who actually are dealing with silver and make a profit off of their betrayal. And they, weren't they not supposed to be close to their brother? Isn't it interesting that the people closest to you, the familiar friends, would betray their brother so easily for silver? Then his brothers, then Joseph's brothers cover this all up. Read with me, verse 29. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. <laughs> And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without a doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for, his, for many days. All his sons and his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son, mourning. Thus the father wept for him. So what you have here in this passage... Joseph's brothers slaughter a goat and they dip the coat in the blood of the goat and Jacob is made to believe that his son is slaughtered. Ah, oh, there is so much here. I mean, this is like, this is like bursting with meaning. But, I'll just point one thing out. Do you notice that the deceiver is deceived in this passage? Jacob, how did Jacob attain the birthright? Was it not was it not by putting the skin of a goat on his arms so that he could come off like Esau and attain the blessing from his father? In other words, was it not by slaughtering a goat that Jacob himself was deceiving his father so many years ago? And is it not by slaughtering a goat that he himself is deceived by his, by his sons? 
One commentator says the plot to kill Jacob mirrors Jacob's plot to deceive Isaac. They use their brother's clothing and a goat to deceive their father. And Jacob grieves. He grieves and he weeps as a father over a son. A father who sent a son to go get his brothers. And his brothers filled with murderous rage kill him. I present to you God's chosen family. This is the line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph. The chosen race through whom God would bless the nation. This is the chosen family. Filled with hate and murder. Sexual promiscuity, betrayal, deception. This is the chosen family of God. How in the world will God's promises be brought to bear on the world through these people? Well, we are given a glimmer of hope that human sin is actually not in the driver's seat of this story. In verse 36. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him into Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. And there the chapter ends. So as if to say that something else was happening and something else is happening. Because as the Joseph count unfolds, we learn that God's hidden power is at work against human sin by working through human sin. As the Joseph account unfolds, we learn that Joseph, and you, you, you must see this story from the end if you were to understand the beginning. So let's talk about the end for a moment. As the account unfolds, we learn that Joseph's brothers, the sin of Joseph's brothers, and in the unfortunate events that will befall Joseph in the future, are actually vehicles through which God is working out his redemptive and sovereign plan. They are the means that God is using to work out his sovereign plan. Through the very evil that Joseph befalls, he will ascend to power and nations will be blessed through his wisdom, his God-given wisdom. And Abraham's family will be kept alive because of the sin, partially, of their brothers, of Joseph's brothers. So we must turn briefly to Genesis 50, verse 20, which no doubt half of you have memorized. And I have highlighted and is one of the great texts that show the providence of God and how God's providence works. Because reflecting on this whole sordid affair, Joseph will say to his brothers years later, As for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Do you see that God's sovereign and secret and hidden power was working in and through even the evil of men so that the promises to Abraham could be fulfilled. He would keep the promised seed alive, even in the midst of famine, that would just, just decimate the land and threaten the promised line. God's providential hand was working 
to keep that family alive through the sin and evil of his brothers. Now, I want you to please understand that Joseph, nor could anyone discern how God was actually working through hatred, murder, deception, or potential murder, murder, deception, and betrayal. How could God work through such a thing? No one would perceive that as it was happening. It's only in light of the end could you perceive it. God's providence is imperceptible while it's working. This is why the, the so-called problem of evil is so not a problem for Christians at all. It's just not an... There are atheists and, and great scholars who think this is like the death knell for Christianity. And it's simply... We're, we are simply taught in Scripture that we cannot discern God's will. God's providential hand as it is working. You cannot discern it. One famous Christian philosopher just simply says, regarding the problem of evil, Alvin Plantinga, he says, in response to these atheists, say, well, you know, God clearly doesn't exist because he allows all this evil in the world. And there it is. Christianity disproved. And they, they think that's the real... But Plantinga just simply responds, he says, well, if God, if God did have a reason for allowing certain evils, why think we would be able to perceive it? Why think I would be the first to know if God did have a reason for allowing evil in the world? He uses an, he uses an example of a noceum. Any, an, has anyone ever heard of or been bit by a noceum? Who is that? Is that Todd? All right. Does it hurt? All right. All over, All over Alaska. So they're really, really small, really tiny, and you really couldn't even see them. That's why they're called noceums. They're hard to see, but they have a bite out of all proportion to their size, so you know they're there. Plantinga says, why think that God's reason for allowing evil is like uh, an elephant in the room and not like a noceum? Why, why think it's like a, a, an elephant in the room that you could clearly perceive and not like a noceum? I think in Scripture, God's providential and sovereign plan is being worked out more like a noceum than an elephant in the room. Where God meant these things for good while all this evil was happening at the hand of sinners. Christian, then, please understand that you cannot discern God's hidden providence in your life. You can't discern it. Um, nor are you called to discern it. You can't discern it, nor are you called to discern it. What you are called to do is trust him in the midst of evil in your life. We are, we are given a promise in the New Testament that all things work together for good for those who love the Lord. Mind you, this is for those who love the Lord, not everyone. But for those who love the Lord, all things are working together for good. So no matter what befalls you, God's providential hand is keeping you and protecting you. Amen? And if it's all things... Is cancer a subset of all things? Is a loss of a job a subset of all things or not? I want to invite you to just a overarching, all-encompassing trust in God. This does not mean you don't have responsibility if you have been here for any amount of time. I'm, I tell you guys to do a lot of stuff. So, but this means that God's sovereign hand is working. So how, is, how does sickness, pain, loss, cancer, unbelieving children, how, how is this working together for good? I don't know nor am I called to know. 
What you are called to do is trust. Obey, pray, under the sovereign and mighty hands of a good God. Does not Jesus teach this? When he says, don't be anxious for anything. You can't add one hour to your life by being anxious. Right? And then you know what he says? Oh, you of little faith. Be of much faith that there is a good God who is working out all things together for good for those who love him. Be of much faith that although man and Satan means it for evil, God can and does repurpose it for good. Be of good cheer and be of much faith, people of God. You know what the virtuous woman does at tomorrow? She laughs. She laughs at tomorrow because she's not anxious about it. Because she has a good and sovereign God whom she trusts. Laugh, virtuous woman. Laugh at tomorrow. You're, we're not called to wringing our hands. Now there will be sorrow and they will roll like sea billows at times. But out of that sadness, laugh again because God's good and sovereign hand is working in the midst of those things. You know what God does with nations that rage against him and people that plot in vain? He holds them and he laughs at them. Psalm 2. God laughs. So when we see our country, the world falling down around us, laugh in defiance of Satan. Have a confidence that God, God's sovereign and good plan will work out just as he promised it. So, even if you are plagued by a demon to buffet you, God can mean that for good. Like he did with the Apostle Paul to keep him humble. So, you are invited, dear brother and sister, to believe that God's good and providential and sovereign hand is working. And you're very fortunate that you are part of his people through faith in him. Because his plan actually works out for your good. Now, in this we see not only a theological principle that man can mean something for evil, but God can use it for good. But we actually see a foreshadowing of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and I hope that became clear as the exposition was given. Because while the Father sent the Son to get his brothers, Jesus Christ was an obedient son, was he not? And did he not go to his brothers, and did his brothers, did his own not receive him? He went to his own, and his own did not receive him. And in fact, when Jesus came, when the Son of God came to his brothers to go get them according to the Father's will, what did they do? They were filled with a murderous rage and said, Come, let us kill him. And what good can come from that, you might ask? What good could come from, for the Son of God to come down and be crucified at the hands of sinners and pagans in such a deplorable, disgusting way, being betrayed by those closest to him but for silver? What good could come from that? Well, we're told that this Jesus delivered up it was according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. And you crucified him and killed him at the lands of, hands of lawless men. So, the cross was according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. So that many should be kept alive as they are today. Not physically, 
but spiritually. Not temporally, but eternally. So now, the promises of Abraham and the life of Joseph and this story of Joseph that we're going to talk about for the next few months, you see how Jesus Christ is the ultimate fulfillment. Many are kept alive through the death of Jesus Christ and it's only by looking at the story from the end that you are able to perceive that. Acts 4, 27-28 comments on the cross again. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. They meant it for evil, did they not? But God meant it for good, that many should be kept alive. So please see the Old Testament as the shadows. As the shadows that Christ casts. Do you know what a baby does when you point to something? They stare at your hand. And Jewish people are in an infantile state. A, a shadow lies over their eyes. A veil lies over their eyes. But now, in this New Covenant era... We don't stare at the hand. We don't stare at the finger that points. We stare at the one to whom the finger points to, Jesus Christ. So we have grown up to maturity as God's people, bringing out of our treasures what is old and what is new. So, Christian, please, don't search for... Don't, don't be demoralized that you cannot discern God's providence in your life. Trust God's providence in your life. Trust that he works all things together for good. Follow him. Believe his promises. Seek first his kingdom. And everything else will be added. Because God is provident and sovereign. And he asks us to believe his good power that's been at work from the very beginning to bring about his promises. Let's close in a word of prayer and I'd like to invite Todd up.